0: My name is Rodrigo Prieto, and you're listening to the CinePod Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts... Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman.
1: Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? It's going pretty well. How's it going with you? It's going Jim Dandy. <laughs> hey, uh, who's on the show today? Very exciting. Actually, a uh, returning guest. We haven't had that many people who've been on the on the show more than once. Mm -hmm. But returning guest, the very esteemed Rodrigo Prieto, who you interviewed mostly uh, about the Irishman, but, you know, sort of kind of like the career overview. And I believe it was at camera image that you uh, interviewed him. That, that's true. And uh, for any of you who uh, who
2: missed that interview uh, and want a double whammy of Rodrigo, go back and uh, give it a listen. It's in our uh, I think it's episode 56. We'll put it in the show notes for sure. Yeah,
1: definitely listen to it. It's, it's a great interview. You did an amazing job. And when we were talking to Julie Taymor about the Glorias, she said, are you talking to Rodrigo? And I was like, not currently, but we would love to. So, uh, so someone on their side uh, talked to uh, Alana Cody, our producer, and they made it happen. And we got to talk to uh, Rodrigo primarily about the Glorias, but we, you know, we we kind of veer into some other stuff. And uh, you know, he's just a super warm, wonderful, open, very uh, strong connection to his creative process kind of artist. And I sort of love that. You know, when you kind of look at his filmography, you see that he works with people like. Martin Scorsese and Julie Taymor and, um, and and multiple times with both of them he's it's like not like he only yeah. worked with them once it's like no he's done yeah, Lee. yeah and he worked he worked with uh uh Iñárritu. he worked with Alfonso Cuarón like he's worked with a lot of these really I would say auteur directors and it's interesting to kind of talk to somebody who's able to kind of slip into the world of various auteurs. And I feel like Julie Taymor is a a really interesting auteur because she brings not just a strong cinematic eye uh, as a director, but she's, you know, a a legend in theater. And I feel like those two disciplines really do influence how she directs movies. So Ben, I'm gonna peel back the curtain just a little bit for
2: for our listeners here. You're a director, you're a producer, you um, interview a ton of cinematographers for the show, I know that everyone who's ever been on the show you would work with. I know that that's, that's, you know, goes without saying. But 100% of them, yes. <laughs> but at the same time, some people you might be just like, holy crap, I can't, I, you know, it would be so awesome to work with this person. Tell me, tell me what that, like your awesome meter was doing when you were interviewing Rodrigo, where the whole
1: time you're going, like, oh my oh, God, yeah. and
2: how much I would love to work with this guy.
1: Definitely peeking on the awesome meter because he's someone who's very passionate about kind of the creative process and about about helping a director reach their creative goals. You kind of imagine that somebody who's going to work with all of these gigantic Titanic directors like Martin Scorsese is, I don't know what I imagine that kind of a person would be, but but I guess what's refreshing about talking to him is he's very humble. He's I wouldn't say plain spoken like he definitely is talking about his his craft in uh in intricate ways but i don't think it's in a way that would like lose most listeners i think that if you had never heard of cinematography and you didn't know anything about the gear and you heard an interview with him you would probably walk away very interested in what he had to say yeah yeah i i mean hey when i'm not running hot red cameras I, humble the word is humble. humble yeah like he's he's just he's just a. those are sometimes my favorite people to talk to you know especially you know like in my mind when I've built some of these people up you know it's like this guy who shot multiple films for so so many of these like amazing directors movies I've seen in the theater sometimes movies I've seen multiple times in the theater and then you meet the the person who crafted these images that like so uh inspired me whenever I saw them and it's like he he's just a really nice guy who's easy to talk to about what he does, you know? And, and I mean, that's what you want, right? Uh, I, I absolutely.
2: Uh, I will tell you that he has uh, zero pretense and, uh, and that's wonderful. And he's, you know, he yeah. may not present himself as particularly technical, but in my, in, in my sort of like not doing a podcast or not running a camera shop thing, when I'm on technical, a technical consultant for, for productions and I deal with all kinds of people who have these, I'll just say massive, massive pretentious egos and attitudes. And you know, at some point you just kind of go, Oh, you know what? I, I, I understand. I, I understand this person passed to, you know, be the smartest person in the room. Uh, I, I so much appreciate when I'm not the smartest person in the room. And I really appreciate when mm-hmm. I, when I talk to and meet DPs who have zero pretense and they're totally masters their game and they totally know exactly what's going on. And I I feel like Rodrigo is one of those people.
1: Somebody like Rodrigo, uh, probably he, like I think he primarily thinks of himself as an artist and a problem solver, but in aid of doing that, some of the technology that he's worked with, I mean, on the Irishman alone, You know, like the stuff they did on The Irishman is insanely technical and very hard to do. And then uh, in The Glorious, there's some outrageously interesting problem solving going on. And he also talks a little bit about his collaboration with Julie Taymor on uh, Frida which is also amazing and gorgeous. And, you know, for him was also very important because Frida Kahlo was from his country. And like, he grew up surrounded by, you know, her iconic paintings, but, but hearing how these two minds kind of come together to solve problems. What you come to realize is like, sometimes it's, it's kind of a basic (laughs) engineering feat where it's like, Hey, we want to do this crazy thing, but we don't have enough money to do it. Uh, but Here's an idea. Now they go into both of them go into detail about this, so I'm not going to murder it. No, no, we, but yeah, we we'll, we'll let it speak for itself. But there's like one in particular that I that I love that they both talked about. Julie Taymor talked about it in my interview with her, and then he he brought it up again. But it's this series of speaking engagements that Gloria Steinem and one of the other characters has, and rather than uh, rent you know 10 auditoriums and fill them with extras they put them on a turntable and kind of had a montage going on behind them so it's sort of they sort of figured out a way to make this montage scene which would be a montage of them you know at different venues blah 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 they managed to do it in one shot in one very ingenious shot and ending it on uh on an iconic still photo that was taken of of, uh, Gloria Steinem. And the idea sort of comes from they don't have the money to, you know, rent seven auditoriums and hire all those extras. How are they going to do this? And then they come up with a better idea that's more cinematic, that tells the story in an interesting and visual way that kind of makes you as a viewer lean in. And uh, I I just love hearing about problem solving like that and and how uh, people like Rodrigo creates, you know, such such stunning visuals as he does. Agreed. I I think
2: that... um Babel may not be my favorite movie in the world as a movie, but every frame of that movie, I think that's some of his best work. It's just like, and it's so many different looks and it's such a, you know, powerhouse tour de force of visuals. And, you know, he, he does this all the time. But like, when I think about, when I think about him, when I think about his stuff, I think about movies like Babel where it's like, there's just, there's not a bad shot in the, in the movie.
1: Well, and and there's definitely, that's, that is the case in The Glorious, uh, which I think is either already out or about to be out. So Ben, we should probably get into
2: close focus.
1: Oh, yeah, it's been quite a week. Quite a it has. Week. I'm reminded of a quote, actually,
2: uh, by Rahm Emanuel. Rama uh, you've probably heard this before, which is, you never let a serious crisis go to waste. And what I mean by that, it's an opportunity to do things that you think you
1: could not do before. So we kind of wanted to talk about a little bit about the economic tidal wave of covid related news that's kind of hitting the industry you were taken by uh some stuff uh, that happened at disney and i was kind of knocked on my ass about regal cinema and a few other cinema chains including i believe cinemark who are closing yeah like the whole the whole company's closing and it's because uh the james the new james bond movie got pushed again because they're not going to release it in november and they were all kind of counting on that as you know a way to make enough money to defray all the costs of what they've lost you know since march
2: yeah uh, regal is one of the uh, the largest theater chains in the U S and I think that their parent company might be one of the largest in the world. If I recall correctly, I don't remember if it's uh connected or not, but there's another company that is headquartered in the UK. That's also announcing that they're, they're closing. I, th- I think it might be their, their parent company, but in the U S that's only 543 theaters. <laughs> so
1: I don't, have any sc- only.
2: I don't know how many screens that is, but that's a
1: lot of theaters. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a big deal. And Cinemark is also, I don't know exactly how many screens that is, but it's, you know, not insignificant and. And uh, I have been wondering since this started, like, you know, movie theaters in Los Angeles have not reopened. But, like, you can't see a movie in a theater in L.A. right oh, now.
2: Oh, I can. I can confirm that. Yes. Their U.K. overlords, uh, Cineworld, uh, tweeted this on Cineworld yeah, just it, yeah. uh, today. So,
1: yeah. But I also wonder, like, the buildings and the malls and the stuff where all these movie theaters are, are they going to... Like, it's not like no people are going to the mall anyway. Like, are they are they going to leave them as movie theaters is, you know, when, when this all comes back and this goes away, are people going to come and buy these buildings and reopen movie theaters at discount prices or what's going to, what's going to happen to theatrical? That's a a big thing. You know, I, I, I keep hearing the news about sort of how Tenet, the new Christopher Nolan movie just obviously tanked in America because no one's going to any movies and they decided to only open it in theaters. I, I sort of wonder if all the movie theater chains hadn't cut some kind of a deal with the studios where it's like okay release it on vod but you know give us some kind of a kickback so that we can stay in business so that when we can reopen we'll still carry movies instead of things like universal and uh you know uh i think it was amc saying that they wouldn't carry universal features because they released trolls world tour in in vod
2: yeah yeah that's uh that that's exactly what happened and then it seems like they the rhetoric backed down quite a bit afterwards
1: it'll back down but it's like you know i mean i like to remind myself often that uh everything went away in uh, 1918 thanks to world war one and a global pandemic and then it it, we still had the roaring 20s like you know the the world didn't end permanently it was uh you know it was a shit show for a couple of years and then it all came back but it's a little scary when you think about like what is the future of of movie theaters
2: yeah well um (laughs) <laughs> we
1: will see. We don't know what it's going to be.
2: Uh, it's uh, It depends on how quickly uh, vaccines come into play. It depends on how quickly uh, the movie industry decides that they want to continue to be in bed, so to speak, with the theatrical. I mean, uh, it was a way to get higher dollars per person to see a movie. But as we discussed before, Disney's trying to rewrite those rules right now. Some other people are trying to rewrite those rules. I mean, if you're going to pay $10 to drive out somewhere and pay dollars for parking and popcorn and everything else, uh, or you could stay home and watch it for thirty bucks. I think there's going to be a bunch of people who choose staying home and paying thirty
1: bucks. Yeah, I mean, you know, I but I, I still think that the I think people still want the theatrical experience. You're going to want to see whatever the you know Avengers Endgame of the of of the upcoming years are. You know, I mean, the new Wonder Woman movie. Oh yeah, people want to see that. That is something people will pay a premium to see in a theater. And I don't I mean, it'll be fine to watch it. It'll look great on your home system, but it's not going to be the same. Like that is a movie that is designed for theaters. And one of the uh, criticisms I keep hearing of Mulan is that Mulan feels like it belongs on a bigger screen than your television. And in fact, it was kind of designed for that, you know. And you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the layoffs at Disney.
2: Yeah. Disney just announced twenty eight thousand layoffs mostly affecting theme park workers in florida and and this kind of brings I you they back.
1: reopened the theme park in florida they, they did but they're gonna let a bunch of people go it's what it sounds like now this is this is again just just announced but uh, I, I, I have get, to say that going to a theme park is lower on my list of priorities than going to a movie theater right now <laughs> like why would i do that who's yeah, going but, to a, who wants to go to a theme park right now uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, smash in with, with people inside the, uh, you know, the haunted mansion and stuff like Sounds that. Sounds great. I'm going to get into like a weird thing crammed in a room with a bunch of strangers who are sweaty and have been outside all day and I don't know where they've been. And,
2: oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, anyway, here, here's the thing. It's like, you know, this brings me back to the, the Rama quote, uh, about, about tragedies and, you know, opportunities and, uh, you know, Disney, who also owns Fox? They they cut executive salaries right towards the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, You know, mm-hmm. it was about fifteen to twenty five to percent, depending on
1: who you so were. The executives and how you went from from making ten million to making nine million. It was a real bummer. Yeah, it
2: was. It, you know, it affected about seven hundred employees. We're talking about people mm-hmm. at the vice president level or
1: above oh so i wasn't kidding probably people who were who were making seven figures uh probably high six
2: figures and seven figure salary people yes that's who it was so and uh just a few weeks ago now just at the july 31st all of those salaries were reinstated at you know full capacity they got their full money back and a letter that went out to all of them you know uh from (laughs) from uh, Fox's chief legal and policy officer, basically to to all the employees, uh, thanking everyone for the sacrifice they've made over the past several Mm -hmm. months, which has allowed them to protect the full-time colleagues with salary and benefits. And then, of course... Right on the heels of that, here's 28,000 layoffs. And I understand it's different divisions and different sorts of stuff, but but frankly, it's all the same parent company. And I, I am re- reminded actually about you know our producer, Alana Cody, used to work for a, a large television network uh, that did the same thing during the uh, global financial crisis. But before there were actually any real impacts that could be felt, the big television network she was working for was called E!, uh, yeah, they, they uh, decided to lay off a bunch of people. They decided to use it as an excuse. They said, hey, you know what? This is a really tough economic time and we're slashing a bunch of jobs. And Alana was one of those people who got who got slashed. So it's like a bit large corporate, the corporate mentality of the tragedy or the disaster as a way to um, change your expenses, change what what's going on. Uh, I, I, you know, I run a camera shop and my camera shop has been pretty dramatically affected by the pandemic because we were not in the business of selling consumer products. We were selling a very expensive, of stuff for professionals who are engaged typically in professional production. And granted, we have had an increase in uptick in the consumer level products of which we sell some, but that's not our, our bread and butter. That has been very nice. It's kind of carried us through, but I find out from talking to other camera shops, the ones that are consumer focused, the ones that are just all about selling someone a, you know, a, a camera for, for people to be, you know, taking their pictures of their kids or whatever it might be, or their, their animals or, you know, sunsets, uh, those camera shops are doing really, really well right now. And so when I read about like big corporate camera shop, uh, laying off thousands of employees, it makes me wonder exactly like, Oh, they're, you know, they can use this as an excuse, but, but really there are some companies out there that are totally in the black that are doing really, really well. And. Uh, It's interesting to see where the bodies are buried and how things are shuffled about and what companies are willing to do and then, you know, what lip service they pay to other things. So in in this these strange days that go forward, I would say that when you look at the uh, the theme parks, when you look at the uh, the situations where it's like it makes obvious sense, the theaters, it's like, yes. I totally am not surprised those are closing at all. Who wants to go to those? But then you hear about other businesses that actually may not be affected or actually have realigned their resources and are actually doing incredible right now. But they'll still use the pandemic or other sorts of industry problems a- as an excuse to remove employees from their their well, salad from I their- mean,
1: I don't I don't know what the exact story is, and you know, with full disclosure, I do a lot of freelance work for Disney, but I'm not you know, I'm not beholden to defend them. At the same time, you know, I assume that if the theme park business is doing as badly as I imagine it would probably be doing during a pandemic, you know, maybe they just had to cut those those jobs just you know they're just oh sure but i mean you know,
2: but but maybe if they, if they were really concerned about the about the losses they would have made those salary cuts uh last a little bit longer or more permanent on the other side of that yeah, business maybe too. So, i don't
1: know i mean i also know that a company as giant as disney has like giant massive divisions and it's not like they can say okay well we're gonna well, you know, the, these 900 people who are working in, in Anaheim and Los Angeles are going to get money that was going to go to the theme park in Florida. You might as well be like talking about different countries.
2: It's true. It's true. And the way that these companies are siloed where, where essentially now um, you, you've got completely separate redundant divisions, which actually I think leads us to sort of our, our last little uh, tidbit that kind of, and I think this is a perfect segue. Uh, you and I have been talking a little bit about it and there was some debate, but it is now official. Uh, IndieWire is report Reporting, reporting on themselves, that Hollywood Reporter and Variety are now merged. They are now one company, and that all of the reporting that essentially takes place in the industry really has been between Variety and Hollywood Reporter, but now Variety and Hollywood Reporter are all one company, and I have to imagine that the layoffs. You know, besides the fact that it's a pandemic right now, the layoffs because of the redundancies of having, you know, the exact same accounting departments and the exact same, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ad sales departments. And what usually happens when big titans, especially in publishing, get
1: together, a whole lot of people lose their jobs. So I like just you, think that they shouldn't call it the Hollywood ver porter. I think it's a terrible name and they shouldn't do that. <laughs> it's the Hollywood variety.
2: I don't know what the they're going to call it. I think they, don't, yeah. I, they probably won't change They'll it They'll probably
1: just keep both magazines uh, separate. I mean, they kind of have their own separate things a little bit I'll have to ask my uh, I'll have to ask friend of the show, Janelle Riley, that's what she right. has to say about that, because she is a, uh, a writer for a Variety.
2: Yeah. And uh, that, that's going to be interesting, too, because there have always been, you know, I mean, they've seemed to have been quite friendly in recent years, but there was also some some rivalry and uh, there, you know, reporters and employees have been known to to. Travel between those two publications—that's probably not going to be able to happen now, since now uh, the Variety Hollywood Reporter merger is is clearly happening. It's, it was reported on the Wrap on, in at the end of the last month, and uh, yeah, it's it's really it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Well,
1: and, and stuff like that is like that's going to leave that's going to leave a permanent mark. That's like I don't know that that's directly COVID related, but I suspect that it might be. And it's like Hollywood Reporter and Variety have been around for decades, long time, yeah. you know. I mean, variety, I think, has been around since the 20s. And so it's kind of a big deal. You know, it's a little bit like when uh, Endeavor and William Morris Agency merged. Like Endeavor was a newer agency, but, uh, you know, the William Morris Agency had been around like since Vaudeville. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and so it was kind of like, kind of a weird seismic moment when, when, and it happens from time to time, you know, where Disney buys Fox, you know, where like these massive Titanic you know, separate entities become one or move around, uh, the, the, the playing board a little bit. Uh, I don't know that that's more, uh, interesting to me, uh, than terrifying, like, you know, the death of, theatrical and i do believe theatrical will make a comeback it, it may um, just be the coma of
2: theatrical it may, it may not actually be dead it may just be comatose for a period and then come come back roaring and you know actually it's really interesting right now i'm talking to a lot of people who are saying like hey you know travel industry is really really depressed right now but when it comes back oh boy all those trips that that you'd planned people are going to be, be rushing to do that lots of things that people are kind of like laying low right now boom they're predicting huge huge boons as soon as the the pandemic is lifted
1: So real, real quick question before the pandemic hit, what was the last movie you saw in the theater? Got to think about that (laughs)
2: pandemic hit. Uh, it it would have been probably January, February timeframe. I saw a ton of movies at, at Sundance. I saw like 14 movies there. So it probably would have Mm -hmm. been sometime around that. Maybe I saw something after before it really hit, Uh, but I I don't remember.
1: I remember the last two movies I saw in the theater. One, we talked to the DP, it was Guns Akimbo. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and then the very last one I saw before uh, before everything shut down was Invisible Man. All right, yeah, Invisible now, Man now also on uh, pay per view or uh, yeah, uh, who oh, yeah. I think it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it would be anyway because it came out in March and it's you know October. Well, now I get but, to yeah. see it. So <laughs> <laughs> like,
2: I can't go. I didn't make it in the theater. Uh, all right. Well, well, hey, we should get to the interview.
1: Let's do it. So here is Rodrigo Prieto. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so I am here with uh, Rodrigo Prieto. Thank you so much. a returning champion, you've been on the show before. We recently did an interview with Julie Taymor, and we wanted to uh, get a little bit of your insight about working with her on The Glorias, but also on working with her on the other projects that you've worked with her on. You have worked with certain directors like Inuritu and Ang Lee, who you've worked with more than once, which is awesome. Julie Taymor is especially interesting to me because she's somebody who's world-renowned for what she does in theater. And it's interesting how you go about, I mean, I I know that obviously she has her own cinematic language and her own cinematic ideas, but what unique flavors that brings to your process and also what are the interesting things that come up while you're working with someone whose main focus is theater?
0: Yes. um, I met Julie when she was preparing the movie Frida at the time I was in the middle of moving to the United States from Mexico City, where uh, I'm from. So my family and I, after filming Amores Perros, we had uh, considered the idea of trying out moving to Los Angeles. So we were in that process. We actually had moved already, but you know, my my movies had been uh, you know Mexican movies up to that date, and. Uh, so it was one of those things where I still kept going back to Mexico a lot you know, for commercials and all that just to basically survive. And then I, call, I, I got a call from Julie Tamer and I happened to be in New York actually filming a commercial with Alfonso Cuaron at that time, I remember. So I went over to her apartment and uh, read the script, of course, before that and really loved it. Of course, uh, Frida Kahlo is, uh, and Diego Rivera are not, a, not only iconic in the world, but imagine growing up in Mexico City. I mean, it's like a huge part of your development, and especially as an artist, you know? So that was a a huge opportunity, and I was aware of uh, Julie's work, and uh, immediately I was mesmerized by her enthusiasm, her creativity, which just overflows. Uh, Mm -hmm. She was already, even in that first interview, talking about some of her ideas as, for example, animation, you know, stop motion for for the scene after the the crash and with a trolley. And uh, she started talking about, you know, the, the paintings and bringing them to life and uh, all these sorts of things, which uh, I found really very interesting uh, from a visual standpoint, but also a perfect way to, to depict the life of an artist uh, such as uh, Frida Kahlo.
1: When I was talking to Julie last week, I I just kept getting like, like, I I wish that I could talk to her for hours because her process seems uh, extremely dense with information and, and, and lots of research. And she throws around words that you don't always hear from directors like motifs and, you know, kind of she has ideas for how to color code stuff. And uh, and I don't know if that comes from theater, or if that's just in general, just being being a dramatist. But was it more or less kind of research than you were used to being given by a director on a given project?
0: Well, um, I would say it's just uh, a very different process, uh, and every director has their their own ways, you know. And mm-hmm. and uh, with Juliet was very organic. Indeed, she she you know she's full of ideas, and she loves collaborating with her team Mm -hmm. on, on, on all these ideas. It's not like she has this, this uh, thing set in her mind and that's what it's going to be. And we just have to deliver. She has a notion of what kind of things she'd like to do. And I guess in theater, she's also used to working, you know, with the set designers and with the lighting designers and with everybody to, to, you know, create uh, the, the end result, which is always amazing. So she really does bring out the best in, in her team. And, so, yes, she comes with ideas, references, and uh, but she's completely open to everybody else's input. And that's very exciting. Uh, I remember on Frida particularly, she really wouldn't approach the sessions when we were brainstorming, let's say in a cinematography way or in a technical way at all. It would be, mm-hmm. I, I imagine this, I imagine whatever it might be, forced perspective, you know, this or that, or, you know, she has the image in her mind and And then you know it was up to us, Felipe the production designer, and myself, to figure out how to achieve that and then you know propose also ideas on top of it. so it, it was really exhilarating. And uh, it's been that way ever since, you know, and uh, on, on The Glorias, it was certainly exciting, that collaboration. You know, we shot listed together the whole movie mm-hmm. and, uh, and that was a wonderful process. And even as we were doing that, since she, she you know, has a, such a big part in, as a writer on the script, you know, she'd be adjusting the script to the, the ideas that came up in the shot listing. Mm-hmm. And so it really made us feel as co-creators, you know, I, I certainly feel that way working with Julie uh, you know obviously she's a director and it's it's her vision completely but yeah, uh, yeah. you do you do feel uh, ownership in, in the work as well
1: looking at your filmography, so many of the directors that you tend to work with are people who have a real stamp on their work, you know, like Ang Lee, and they're almost like people who you bring them up, and they're almost a genre in and of themselves, and I feel like uh, Julie Taymor, and I said this to her as well, it's like, she's doing stuff that I don't know of any other film director who's doing it, and you brought it up in Frida, and then in uh, The Glorias, there are those sequences like the Wicked Witch of the West sequence that's in The Glorias, where the movie kind of goes away from the narrative for a second and becomes expressionistic. I don't know if that's the right word. Impressionistic, expressionistic. And you did that also in uh, in Frida with her as well. Throwing uh, everything but the kitchen sink using so many cinematic techniques that I feel like are underused or not used very much at all by other filmmakers. Can you talk about like the construction of those sequences or like, I mean, maybe if you could talk about the Wicked Witch scene in uh, The Glorias, just kind of how the idea came about how you went about kind of figuring out how to, how to tackle it. It's not like you're in, it's not like, Hey, we're in a hotel lobby. Where do we put the camera? It's like, no, we're making all this up out of, out of whole cloth.
0: Yes, exactly. Well, it, it was a process. It wasn't written exactly that way. It was uh, in the script very open to coming up with, uh, with something, you know, and, and mm-hmm. we knew that the basis of it was, uh, yes, indeed. The wicked witch of the West and the, the whole, um, Uh, Dorothy uh, parallel and all that you know and and Julie wanted to express Gloria's anger in in this visual way you know Gloria Steinem in particular you know as a a person who characteristically listens to to people and brings out what what people need and what they're looking for and you know supports them and, and, and that's very much her mo and she's really lovely we met her and that was of course she she came to visit the set and it was uh, really amazing to to meet her and to feel her energy. So perhaps she she it's not that she swallows her anger as a person, right? She is she is expressive. She's a she's a person who who has certainly been through a lot in her life. In fact, one of the themes in the movie is how she's learning to do that from a young woman to an older woman you know sometimes one gloria talks to the other gloria about that's precisely that sort of thing right so this scene was an opportunity to just uh, like in an instant it also to play with time you know that this whole dream sequence happens you know in a few minutes whereas it actually in in real time it's supposed to have, be a, you know a second, maybe. Anyway, so we knew we knew the set. We, we knew the television set where we were filming it, and we basically created it. it. was kind of an empty shell, so I had to, you know, reproduce a type of lighting that you have on a television show, and, and uh, you know, so I lit it not in the way that I would have done it, but the way it was done, especially in the 70s, so we actually utilized lighting units from that era, and oh, wow. uh, and they're in the set. You see them on the top of frame sometimes, and but I was also using them to actually light the scene, you know, so it was a uh, combination of props and you know a scenery and then I had uh you know we had this notion of the the whole world turn turning to red so I prepared on top of the grid the television lighting grid we had a second grid which was actually just a pipes and and, uh, beams of the location, uh, because it wasn't a very high place. So in any case, I rigged uh, um, quite a few LED lighting devices, sky panels they're called, where you can choose whatever color and you can do lighting effects and uh, chasing sequences, all sorts of things with these uh, units. So with that, we surrounded the perimeter uh, of the place with with these types of lights. Maybe they were about six feet apart, as well as in the center. So basically, I was able to create a wash of red light uh, that starts the sequence going. And then the set actually changes. And so we had to, the logistics of that, right, we had to you know film something else and in the meantime the art department was changing the platform and then all the dry eyes you know it took a lot of meetings to figure out just physically how to do that transition especially how to have her come out from uh, the younger gloria and we wanted to do it physically you know then visual effects do take over as things become more complex and then we actually shot against the green screen hanging the young the, the little girl on the on the broom you know and and uh the camera was moving on a crane to have all that movement we also were having her turning the camera did a lot of the movement against the green screen so then you can place her anywhere so we we did uh, a lot of of that i had some lighting units that would represent lightning for example that i did not light red i lit it neutral and color so that we could then bring in the color in post-production so it, Mm -hmm. it took a lot of meetings and figuring out but um so it's a combination of the physical real effects on the stage on the set and then uh, you know a lot of visual effects obviously added and animation and stuff so it's, it it uh, it was uh, it was fun you know just figuring it out, uh, all that sequence, as well as all the, the stuff on the, 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 the bus, for example, you know, how, to, how you do that, whether we did it black and white or not, whether the exterior would be black and white as well, or color, how to transition, yeah, yeah. how realistic should it be, but it's fake, but it's, you know, it's a, imagine the, the world in like a limbo of imagination, you know, all these things, how do you, how do you represent these things visually? It was really uh, a challenge.
1: Well, and that was some, That was another thing I wanted to talk about was that bus thing. It's like the spine of the movie in a sense, where you have Gloria Steinem at various ages, uh, represented by different actors, and then Julie Taymor has them all on a bus together, able to talk to each other, which is such a brilliant idea. Almost reminiscent of like uh, the Bob Fosse movie, all that jazz, a little bit. So you, you were you were saying that that you did that in black and white. Was black and white like the choice before you went in to shoot?
0: It's funny you mentioned all that jazz. Perhaps. One of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> Love that film. Yes, a great movie. <laughs> Yes, that, that combination precisely of reality and, and sort of fantasy or dreams or imagination is, is, is yeah. great. Um, in terms of the bus, uh, yes, black and white was pretty much uh, from the beginning. Julie was talking uh, about that. I, I think the mm-hmm. biggest question was what to do with the exteriors, whether to keep those black and white, but then we we're going to go, say, in India. We we're going right immediately transition into the full color shots in India. So we 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 decided to do tests to actually first it was just photographs, right? And and, and photograph someone sitting in a in a bus and making that black and white, and then Photoshop a, a, a color exterior. How does that look? You know. All these things, uh, we, we struggled a lot uh, trying to make these decisions. Also, all the scenes in the bus that are not transitions into, you know, into a, a scene for the, the rest of the movie, that we wanted to be all black and white. So how do you, how do we mix that, you know? And so we, and what, do we shoot background plates? You know, because we did shoot the bus in a, in a studio, in a soundstage, with, uh, surrounded by green screen. So do we have to shoot background plates for every single shot? I mean, that would have been just... From a technical standpoint, um, scheduling standpoint, almost impossible. So we decided on the more abstract approach for those moments. It's just sort of a, a black and white, blurry things that are going by. You know, that more, more just abstract. So we, it ended up being the whole bus. It, let's let's say much more um, a fantasy world than than what maybe we originally intended. For instance, when the little girl, when the young Gloria, the, the youngest Gloria, is uh, is looking out the window. The, the exterior is in color, but it's actually a plate of uh, a, a real street that was photographed, uh, you know, it's probably in the 50s,
1: maybe 60s. Wait, it was, an, it was an actual driving plate from that time? It's a
0: driving plate, a stock shot, yes. And, uh, Whoa! So the perspective is all wrong, you know, it's completely wrong. And besides, it's taken from a car, not the height of a bus, you know, so there were all yeah. these things. I was, I was struggling with that sort of thing. when The first time I saw it, I was like, man, that just doesn't look right. But then we decided, okay, we're going to embrace that. That's that's going to be sort of the style there. Not always. You know, like, for example, the transition into India, that is correct. That we made sure that... When we shot in India, we placed the camera at the correct height of a bus and in a, a tracking vehicle with a steady cam, and, uh, and we made sure the lens matched and the, everything, the camera angle matched, you know, all these things. So we were careful in that scenario to make it, let's say, relatively realistic. Uh, obviously, with the exterior being in color, and the interior in black and white is not very realistic, but anyway we yeah. didn't want to to match the perspective so it was always this sort of thing of, of, of how, how realistic to be or not and and in fact, this is a, a movie uh, you know I guess it, you can say that of maybe every movie, but uh, the, the the ambition was much much bigger than and the script itself than the budget so It was budgeted for, you know, sort of a low-budget, relatively low-budget indie movie, you know, a biopic, you know, but not with all these flourishes, you know, so we have to figure out, even schedule-wise, how to fit in to the box of uh, a budget made for you know a movie that would be just you know seeing her life and all that but then we have to create this this whole environment and then put this bus in the studio and light it so that it seems like it's moving and you know this and that uh many car scenes we couldn't we didn't even have the time to f- for film in, inside cars you know with all these dialogue scenes that that's very time consuming so we did all that in the studio all of it and um so i had to figure out ways to create lighting um, you know interactive lighting that could that could work and, and and then we did shoot background plates for all those scenes anyway it was really a big puzzle to to figure the whole thing out especially schedule wise uh how to how do fit all these things that we needed to achieve into a, a, a reasonable schedule. But in the end, we, we, we did it. And, and that's also the genius of Julie. You know, she, she knows what she wants, what she needs, and she, she'll push for it, you know, and, and she, she doesn't give up. And and I, I, I've worked with many directors like that. And I think that's one of the secrets of the success of, of the directors that I've worked with is that they push for things, you know, and they... Uh, the crew, then we all figure it out, you know, we find ways to to deliver, you know, and we're not going to give up, we're not going to say, no, you just can't do that, you know, and certainly there's things that, of course, may be unaffordable, but there's, you know, always a way, and Julie is very good at, at creatively figuring out how to adjust. An example that comes to mind, uh, not from the Gloria, it's from Frida, is a, is a trolley accident, and uh, so we couldn't afford to, you know, have a bus crash into a trolley and see all that, you know, from the exterior. So Julie said, let's do it all from inside the trolley. And let's just build little pieces of the set. And then we'll just do very specific shots and it's more in her mind. And uh, each shot was designed and, and, you know, we just had very specifically, you know, like the the floorboards breaking, like the thing, things of this sort. And it's very effective, I think, much more so than if, if we had had the money to do the huge stunt and, and have the, the actual crash. You know? So it ends up being with a director like Julie, where the, the constraints and the limitations of, of budget actually make you come up with stuff that ends up being more effective, I think.
1: Yeah, I I definitely got that impression when I was talking to her as well in that it's something that I don't think I hear a lot of directors talking about is like, okay, well, we only had this much time or we only had this much. So I came up with this idea and then the idea is extraordinarily visual or extraordinarily cinematic. It's like a uh, but but also you go like, oh, yeah, you could do that in, in one soundstage. You don't you don't need to like block off seven city blocks in New York City to do that kind of thing. Uh, like she was talking about the rotating. Um, it, it, it was like a turntable that where you were doing like the interview stuff with uh, with her. It, the turntable
0: was the scene where she's with uh, Dorothy uh, Putman, I think. And there, you know, it was sort of a, the, the idea of they give lots of speeches together. So instead of seeing, you know, each one of the, the speeches, that means, OK, now we need a crowd. We need a stage. Different ones. And then we need another crowd, a different stage, you know, because they went to many different places and talked together. So instead of that, let's just put them on a turntable and have it turning around and then create a a collage in the background, which is sort of moving and it's abstract. And you see people and you see, uh, you know, um, signs and and demonstrations and uh, this and that. And you get a sense, you get a feeling of, of what they did together rather than actually seeing it. And, 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 yeah. which would have been much more expensive and again I think it's much more effective and, and, and then it ends with a photograph you know an iconic photograph where there are two the two of them where their fists raised which is an, an actual we reproduce the photo the original photo
1: So like a solution like that to me kind of reminds me of something one might do in theater. If you're doing live live theater and you needed to show that kind of an idea, you could put actors on a turntable or come up with some kind of a, again, a motif or or something to kind of imply the montage that you're that you're describing. Now, when you're working with her, do you find that she's dipping into techniques that are less maybe familiar to filmmakers and maybe more germane to theater and then bringing them over and coming up with film solutions that feel like they're from the theater world?
0: Well, it's interesting because the, the thing that came to my mind as you were saying that was the Wilder Beast uh, Stampede and The Lion King. And, and I remember seeing them and going, wow, that's so amazing, so beautiful and so exciting. You know, and and uh, yes, that's exactly the kind of thing she she her mind uh, goes to, you know, how to... How represent something. And that's the beauty of theater, really, that, that in, in cinema, we're now used to seeing things in a more naturalistic way for the most part, even in, you know, fantastic movies or even superhero movies. You know, they're, crazy things are happening, but the the physical way they happen is emulating the, the laws of physics, let's say, the realistic laws of yeah. physics, you know, um, even though, uh, you know, perhaps people can't fly, but whatever, uh, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that she comes with solutions that are more representative, more symbolic, uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and it, it, you know, people make the connection. And that's, that's a magic thing of theater, I think. We, we all go to the theater and accept that there is a stage and that there, you know, these, these sets, you know they're not real, and they're moving around, and the you know and the the curtain goes, and you can picture the people moving it around, you know, changing the sets, and you you don't not only accept it, you enjoy that part of it, and yeah, and I think that that's uh, something that Julie brings to to the table. It was uh, citing Frida, the scene, uh, the stop motion scene that the Quay Brothers did. Uh, when Frida is uh, in the hospital after the the trolley accident, so she just told the Quay brothers, "You do something. This is the idea, the general notion. You you make it." And so they made this incredible sequence with skeletons that are, you know, like the they have the dead skeletons in Mexico, and it, it's fantastic. But it's stop motion. It's it's you can you can see that they're little figures. You know that they're.
1: Uh, I, I honestly didn't know that that was the, the Brothers Quay who did that. That's, that's amazing. Okay, cool. That, uh, like, suddenly a lot makes more sense to me about that. Exactly. that yeah, they,
0: they shot it, they did it, and they yeah. delivered it to us. And it was like, okay, we love it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but but that's precisely the thing. They're, they're figures. They're little skeletons. They're real. They're not CGI skeletons, you know, and I think that's that's what's uh, beautiful. I mean, in and, and the Glorias, there's another sequence where uh, you know the older Gloria and is is upset and she's uh, overwhelmed. You know, there's so much happening and it's really you know she's been running, literally going from one place to the other. You know, always in hotel rooms and you know stressed out. And so we did this. Uh, we called it the tri- treadmill sk- sequence because we shot it on a treadmill, but <laughs> it's actually she's you know running on the all these streets and you know, and again this was a. Uh, designing the sequence took months, it, you know. Just, just h- how to do it, and and Julie had done something kind of similar in the theater with with lines of of a, a road going through through an actress's face. So she had that idea, and she had the idea of of having her, you know, running and things going by. But we didn't really know what that is, you know, what what that would be, you know. So it, it just took a lot of looking at different references and and coming up with ideas and drawing things on a board. And and, uh, Kim Jennings, our production designer, you know, brought many things to the table. And uh, so, you know, we ended up going with what you saw in the film. But um, even filming that was pretty challenging because it's uh, actually not so easy to run on a treadmill without holding on to anything, you know. Oh, yeah. So that was... uh, how do you do that? Well, we did have to have a, a harness on her, uh, and and that was, uh, you know, attached to the top of the, the stage. But also there were stunt people dressed in green, I think, <laughs> just next to her, in case I just to catch her. She wouldn't have fallen, she would have, because of the, the, the safety rope that was holding on her to her, but uh-huh. still, it would be pretty scary to suddenly lose control, right, and then be hanging, right? So they would immediately grab her. So. Fortunately, it didn't happen. But uh, anyway, that, that's the kind of thing, you know, where, where uh, you know, Julie just imagines this thing and, okay, how do we do it? Uh, you know, and then visual effects, you know, we have to make this treadmill and paint it all green and, you know, and then everything else. And that scenario was basically created by visual effects.
1: So, kind of a, a bigger macro question, which I, I guess I touched upon a little bit earlier, is that you've worked with these iconic directors. I forgot to mention Martin, Martin Scorsese, but maybe worth mentioning Martin Scorsese, one of the most iconic directors of all time. And uh, I feel like looking at your body of work, you go off to work with people who often are like really well known, or you know Oscar nominated, or you know just have like a very specific stamp. What is it like? kind of bringing your creativity, your experience to someone like when, when you walk in to meet with Scorsese, are you thinking about Goodfellas? Are you like what, what's going through your head? And, and is what's the feeling like when you're kind of taking the mantle of their visuals, you know, for one film or, you know, in the case of several of them, several films? I, I, I'm sure you're not every day thinking about their whole body of work. But like, can you talk about working, kind of, I guess, with auteurs, people who we would say were, were definitely auteurs, which Julie Taymor definitely is one of?
0: Yes, for sure. I try to come into every project with a clean slate. Uh, I try not to come in with a set idea or a style. I read the script and try not to imagine it photographically too much, even though it's, that's a little bit inevitable because uh, you know that my brain just works that way naturally, but I try to read it as a novel, just get into the mm-hmm. characters. And the same thing, I try not to imagine it as a Scorsese movie, as a Iñárritu movie, Oliver Stone, Julie Tamer. I just try to think of it as a story and how, what emotions it, it evokes. And then when I talk to a director, I just try to be a very good listener. I try to just be very present, be 100% concentrated. When a director is explaining a shot to me it gets embedded in my brain. I'm imagining the shot, I'm imagining how I'm gonna light it, I'm imagining how, you know, so uh, there's so much thought that's happening at that moment that it, it just becomes part of, you know, just gets, recorded in my brain. So, yes, I, I really try not to really think of anything when I'm when I'm talking to a director. I just try to really be present and, and listening and feeling. And then, you know, obviously, if a director talks specifically about some of my, you know, technical questions or, or visual ideas, you know, I, uh, then obviously I'm in that mode and I'll respond that way. And then the normally the second step for me is once I've done that is to then, okay, then do a visual research and, and mm-hmm. look at photographs, look at the painting, look, look, you know, look at references that it may evoke uh, moments of the script and I'll show those to the director. But again, I don't base it on... Okay, this is a Scorsese movie, so I'm going to research uh, Scorsese's movies. I, I just go, not even yeah. movies, you know, I just go to, to whatever other uh, inspiration I will find. I, I frankly, I rarely, if ever, use other movies as, as reference. Uh, I prefer to use still photography or, or painting or things of that sort uh, because it's, it's already a movie, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I prefer to reference something that's either a photograph that's from real life or, or, or maybe it's a fantasy, right? And, you know, painting will also give you that.
1: When you're talking about, like, going for uh, visual references, and I'm sure you've already talked about this uh, a million times, but when you're working on a movie like Frida where it's about a painter— and it's not just about a painter, but it's about a painter who's significant, you know, in, in, was, was just in the, in the world around you as you were growing up. How much did you end up looking at her work as a direct reference for how you were going to shoot a movie about her versus, you know, maybe photographs of her in her environment or any, any other visual information?
0: Yeah, in the case of Frida, my references were more about the era, you know, and about the time and about what things looked like back then. Because I knew that uh, Frida's art as a reference would be more just literal in the sense that we were going to reproduce some of her paintings. So yeah. we the, the other moments in her life, we weren't trying to make them look like a Frida painting.
1: Exactly. That's why I wanted to know, yeah.
0: Exactly. So so um, just they're surrounded by Mexico City. They're surrounded by, you know, their environment they lived in and the environment they created like the blue house you know so that is just imbued with uh, Frida's personality and also you know part of it was visiting the actual places and seeing what they felt like what they looked like and 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 then that that became the basis of of photographing the the movie itself and and we knew that her art was going to be represented by her art we were literally going to Photograph her paintings and and then you know sometimes bring them to life. Same with Diego Rivera, you know. So uh, and Diego just automatically his physical presence is uh, is in a way like his murals, you know, you know, bigger than life. But also to bring them to uh, a human level, you know, these these icons. We tend to either idolize them or see them as these, uh, you know, beings that uh, are almost extraterrestrials or, you know, supernatural or something. And and, uh, so I think that the movie Frida really humanizes them and, and, um, you know, makes them real with their own struggles. Same as uh, Gloria Steinem on The Glorias, you know, I think that Julie really explored this woman growing up you know and um, and and the struggles she she went through as a child as a teenager as a young woman and you know later in life and and how how she became who she is and she's still evolving like we all are but it's, it's really interesting to see the this 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 one person and all the influences around her, you know, what, what her life was like and, and the people that, that she lived with and that, that she became friends with and that how she dealt with all that. So it's it's fascinating. I think Julie has a way to bring her artistic vision, but also uh, really go deep into the character's souls. And, and that's a beautiful combination, I think.
1: So in the Glorias, you've got four or five distinct periods, plus if we want to call the the bus ride, another specific period that that the movie takes place in. And I know that this is a bigger question that would involve the production designer and hair and makeup and wardrobe and all that stuff. But when you're talking about shooting something that is supposed to feel like the 1950s, are you trying to make it look like the 1950s? Like you dropped a documentary crew into the 1950s, or are you trying to evoke the feeling of, of the 1950s? You know, like I would say the, Mad Men version of whatever time period, like Mad Men, feels like that time period. I don't know if it re- I don't know if it looks exactly like that time period.
0: Yeah. Well, I did want the different eras to feel different uh, from a photographic standpoint. Besides the obvious, like what you're saying, all the costumes and all the things that are changing, the the, the cars, the props, everything uh, gives you the sense of where you are. Uh, in, in what years what decade roughly you're, you're on but I wanted them also to visually feel different because the memory I have of my own life changes you know they just feel different in, in my own memory and that might be influenced by many things but so what I did is I uh, normally our original intention was just to shoot the movie on, on uh, film negative in the end we decided to go with a digital capture I uh, used the Sony Venice camera
1: mm, everyone's digging that camera these days
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful camera. But um, there are many reasons behind that, and uh, certainly budget was one of them. But more than that, uh, it was that we realized that our schedule was so tight that I really needed to be able to continue shooting the daytime scenes past sunset, you know, and Mm -hmm. and the the Sony Venice allowed us to, to continue shooting for, you know, maybe... 30 to 40 minutes after sunset. Maybe 30 minutes. Oh, wow. I might be exaggerating, but I do remember that it felt like, okay, wow, I, I, you know, it looks pretty dark, but then on the camera, it looks, you know, still like daytime, you know, so uh, unless lights were turning on, then you'd be in trouble. But uh, anyway, that was the main reason we decided to, to do that switch, but we didn't want the filmic feel. So we did add some some grain in post-production and in addition to that, we created a series of lookup tables, which are, which are, you know, a way to make the image that the sensor captures make it look a certain way, you know. So it's kind of like, a, let's say, a filter that, that, mm-hmm. you, that you apply to an image. So I decided to apply different lookup tables to the different areas, but based on actual film stocks. So we tested lookup tables that emulated different Fuji and Kodak movie film stocks and particularly fuji had some film stocks that were very very different in terms of color saturation and and things of this sort so i showed them to julie i I shot tests with a digital camera and, and in different environments and with you know actors that sort of matched skin tones that we'd have in the in the film and colors and costumes and you know all sorts of different things and and we ended up choosing film stocks like we would have if we shot on film. The advantage being that, uh, you know, lots of these film stocks don't exist anymore. Right now, there are just a couple of Kodak film stocks in existence. But I I was able to go back and, you know, bring back uh, Fuji Eterna, Fuji Vivid, you know. So, indeed, we we used, uh, for example, one of the Fuji stocks that's... uh, very de- desaturated with uh, with subdued color and and lower contrast. We use that for all the scenes when Gloria is a, a young girl when she's a little girl. So the, 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 there's a little bit of a feeling of of the, the muted colors. If you remember those scenes, it's subtle. I do,
1: but yeah. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. Right.
0: So that was a, a lookup table that was created based on film stocks, and certainly the 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 70s are much more colorful. So I used. Uh, think that was 52 kodak 5279 i think is what we used for that or but it was interesting with julie choosing the these looks you know just just saying okay that feels like this or that so it wasn't didn't necessarily mean that there were film stocks that existed in that era it was uh more about just how each each moment felt so again that was you know i i had these ideas but I, i i didn't want to impose i think this should be this way let's let's look at it together julian and see you know what what you like and and so that's what what you see in the movie is what we agreed on and then we just stuck to it
1: great well uh we're about out of time i really appreciate you giving us your time and uh you know really really enjoyed the movie and great work and you know i i wish i could talk to you all day because i love your entire body of work but uh thanks again uh before we go is there any place people can find your work online
0: Thank you very much, Ben. Uh, I actually don't have a website, which is crazy. I should. I I need a a assistant to do that. (laughs) What I must say is that, for example, Amores Perros is going to be coming out again. Uh, I guess you could call it a restored version, although it's not uh, spoiled or anything, but we went back to the original camera negative and and did a a new uh, color grading of it. Oh, wow. Oh yeah! Originally, Amores Perros was just done uh, photochemically, the, the the color timing of it. So it only existed the proper way in film prints because the the, the telecine and what was done for video was done without my supervision or Alejandro. It was done uh-huh. without us. So all all that you can right now see of Amores Perros. Is actually wrong. <laughs> it's not exactly how we intended it. Basically, much brighter than we intended. But so now you'll be able to see. We did together, Alejandro and I. We did this new uh, color timing of the film that's based on a print. So it's pretty exciting and wonderful. Uh, the Criterion Collection is coming out with it. Oh, cool! Uh, so you'll because it's the 20th anniversary of the movie. So I'm very. Excited. My God, really? Oh my
1: God, I feel so old. Ah, uh, that's crazy. <laughs> I feel like that movie just came out. <laughs>
0: yeah yeah 20 years, believe it or wow. not, I me too when we were you know seeing this the scenes again, it was like, wow, it really brought back a lot of very good memories, you know, and uh, it was really wonderful process. So that that's uh, you can see you know some of my older work there, and you know, and then the other movies I guess are, You can kind of get see, but I I don't have like a demo reel, you know, but
1: I don't think you need a demo reel. I think I think you're good. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. very much. Uh, Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
0: A real pleasure. Thank you. Take care.
1: All right. That
2: was Rodrigo Prieto. Hey, thanks again for coming back on the show for a a second time. Uh, That was a really wonderful follow up interview. Uh, So third time you come on, you get a free sub. That's right. Third time, free sandwich, a little bit of swag. It's good times. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And now short ends. So uh, Ilya, guess what time it is? (laughs) Uh, It's short end time. It is short end time. So uh, do you have an awesome uh, pet obsession of the week? Uh, I do. It's a television show, and I have to say that it's now the second
2: show that I've watched on Apple TV Plus that I've really enjoyed. I believe it is actually uh, something It says a Apple TV original. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe it. I think it was acquired and I'm sure I can research this and figure it out. But it's called Tehran. Have you uh, seen mm-hmm. Tehran? No, no, I haven't. I've heard a little bit about it, I think, from you. Oh, really? OK, well, I think that yeah. it's... Uh, it's a really fun, stylized show, and by fun, it feels very, very real. Like we're getting a, a peek inside the clandestine, uh, the clandestine world of the Mossad, the Israeli Mossad. You know, uh, essentially the 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 equivalent of the American CIA. And I, I don't want to spoil it. And if you have a problem with subtitles, this is not for you. It's the the show is subtitled. You got you got to watch it, and uh, it's really really good. It's a good solid thriller. I think we're only on episode three right now, but but I'm in. I'm in full, full bore. I can't wait to see what happens next. I, if they had released all the episodes, I would have binged it. I was a big fan of Patriot and some other sort of spy type of shows. This is more... I'm going to say traditional sort of cloak and dagger sort of show, but it takes place, you know, uh, with the Musad and it takes place in Tehran. So it's, uh, it's really fascinating and it is worth taking a look at. And I think you'll discover in the first episode, whether or not, if it's for you and I, it's, it's so good, but I don't want to tell anyone about anything except that if you like spy type stuff, uh, you should see it. This is fun.
1: I will definitely check it out. I, I keep meaning to, uh, dip a little bit more into, uh, Apple TV. I, 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 got it so I could watch that beastie boys documentary. And I've, uh, a, a friend of mine actually is a writer and is on Ted Lasso. And I, I haven't, uh, I haven't watched it yet. I hear it's really fun. Ted
2: Lasso is the other show that I watch on the Apple service and it's solid. It's really solid. There's a, um, bad news bears sort of quality about it. That works really well. Sort of fish out of water and uh, sports team, but it's not really about the sports. It's about everything else. And Jason Sudeikis, uh, kills it. He kills it You know, you'd think that that his shtick will get old and wear on you and it it doesn't. And he's charming and the show works.
1: I got to check it out. Brandon Hunt is a guy who I did a bunch of theater stuff with here in L.A. And uh, he's he's got a huge supporting role on it. He was interviewed on Seth Meyers the other day. And, you know, I'm very excited for Brandon. It's, it's, you know, a humongous career move for him. So uh, my short end to no one's surprise is a podcast. (laughs) But I think you're going to really like this one. OK. It's only one episode. Slate Magazine has a podcast network. In in fact, I think the first podcasts I ever listened to in like 2006, 2005, whenever I started listening to podcasts, were Slate. So Slate has some amazing podcasts and they have one that I don't listen to often enough, although it's always interesting when I do, called Working, where they kind of go behind somebody's job. So this last week, they did an extended interview with Phil Alden Robinson, the director of movies like Field of Dreams and Sneakers. And it's a deep dive into how he made Sneakers. Hmm, nice. That's a great movie. And Sneakers to me is like one of those, it's one of those movies that doesn't get enough love. And I should say beautifully photographed by John Lindley who's you know an amazing dp in his in his own right but sneakers is one of the it's 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 just a brilliant heist movie it was one of river phoenix's last roles like i think he he passed away within a year of that coming out you know it's got robert redford uh poitier and uh you know amazing character actors like stephen tabulaski dan Aykroyd's in it and it's just a and ben kingsley uh, list i forget the cast goes on and on it's just an amazing cast it's a brilliant heist movie, and he talks about just the gestation of the script, which took nine years to write. And I was uh, listening to that podcast and just kind of hanging on this guy's every word. And I always think Phil Alden Robinson is like a weird anomaly to me because he wrote some movies like the uh, Steve Martin comedy, uh, Steve Martin, Lily Tomlin comedy, All of Me. You know, he, he had written some stuff. And then he made Field of Dreams and then Sneakers and he still every now and then he'll make another movie like, you know, he it's not like he retired, but I sort of feel like he made these two movies that were like Field of Dreams. You, you'll still hear people reference, you know, if you build it, they will come and Sneakers again, not as referenced, but I just love this movie. I, I think it's it's just got the best energy. It's super weird but it, it's also it's just smart it's way ahead of its time you know sort of the MacGuffin in it is is a black box that you can use to sort of break any code and hack into any system and you know in 1991 whatever like how many people were doing stuff that was sort of like hacker centric and he talks about all the people they interviewed people who were like serious hackers and phone freaks and stuff like that and you know um david strathairn plays a character named whistler who's blind and they based that off a real guy who was blind who uh who was into into that whole culture you know guys who could look at a sheet of paper with nothing but ones and zeros and find the anomaly and find the code and it's just really uh, it's just a fascinating movie and his stories about making it i think are, are great and i think uh everyone uh, who has a soul should go listen to it did i lay it on thick enough
2: (laughs) Uh, i i saw it several times i was working in a video store when when that landed on video and i think there was a couple of weeks where that was like the only thing that showed in in the shop that everyone was just constantly on sneakers was on
1: on repeat so i was a projectionist at the park 11 theater in winter park florida and i would just sit up in the booth and watch that movie over and over again nice there are a few movies like that deep cover was one of those yes deep cover oh yeah Love Deep Cover is another movie that doesn't get enough love, but that's for another short end. <laughs> anyway, Ilya, so I think that wraps us up. Who do we need to thank this week, as opposed to every other week?
2: Hey, you know what? Let's start off with thanking Ben Katz. Ben Katz. Usually, we, I just realized, you know, it seems like we we thank him last
1: in the order, but I'm gonna
2: let's thank him first. Ben Katz,
1: uh, you know, editor extraordinaire. Ben Katz is a superstar, and he and he makes us sound not nearly as dumb as we actually are. Boy, I I I, I
2: sure hope he does something for me on this one so
1: oh boy <laughs> uh who else do we have to thank ben uh, certainly alana cody our esteemed producer who uh, put this interview together in particular in record time like i think from the time julie Taymor said hey are you guys interviewing rodrigo till when the interview happened was maybe like four or five days um yeah that was nice yeah it was it was amazing so thank you alana for this and everything that you do and then of course uh k's Alitrakshi, who in all likelihood is not listening to this that's right. We've thanked this guy more
2: times uh, than maybe anyone on the show, and I don't think he's ever heard us
1: say thank you. I, I mean, he might have heard us say it once. Maybe once. Once was enough. We just gotta get. I mean, we've been saying we were gonna get him on the show. He said he would do the show. I don't. It's really all my fault. I just need to get off my get off my lazy do nothing ass and interview K's. Uh,
2: yeah. By the time we by the time we do that, uh, I'm sure well he will have invented some new technology. He'll be color grading and composing a symphony simultaneously. <laughs> it's like
1: this, this is what the guy he'll does, be doing so. a live show. Like it'll be a live theater mm-hmm. show where you watch him compose a live score while color grading.
2: It will. It'll be like the uh, the performance art festival in Scotland, which name escapes me at a moment right now, but it's incredibly famous. Fringe Fringe Fest. That's it. He'll be doing a
1: Fringe Fest presentation. So and he'll 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 be juggling too. <laughs> they do have a french here in la and also new york oh do they okay also well, they I have one that I... in uh, orlando florida my home my hometown damn well french fest is totally prolific now i had no idea i, th- I think it originated though yeah in- no the french the french festival one of many things that got canceled thanks to covid but it's a huge huge theater clusterfuck <laughs> that happens every year here in la well
2: uh the, the one in in scotland is is quite famous of course for the edinburgh 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 french yes. festival yeah that that is where I was about yeah, to the, say. Yeah, um, the Freestyle Love Supreme, they, they got their first big, you know, sort of uh, break, it seems like, at, at that event, too, and uh, prominently featured in I it. I do
1: believe that that is the original French, so all this to say... K's get on your friend show Wherein you color grade And do a score at the same time And if you Maybe a TED you have talk some Yeah you know, Just kind of that may, Maybe also you do some Houdini At the same time While you're doing that <laughs> Houdini for those of you Who don't know Is high end visual effects Which K's also Maybe he does. can do it While doing yoga I, I don't know maybe he's, maybe he's not a yogi So <laughs> In summary Thanks, <laughs> thanks Kays. Kays Hey uh, Ben Where can people find you? benrockonline.com. I just kind of uh, overhauled it. In fact, most of the overhauling was just uh, throwing shit out. I, I, I cleaned it up and got rid of a bunch of stuff, put my new reel up there. Go on. Check out my reel. Tell me what you think. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, uh,
2: hotrodcameras.com. Uh, that's kind of the shop where you can support the company, support the podcast,
1: support uh, you
2: know what we're doing here.
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, Reach out. Uh, There's nothing better you could do for the podcast, by the way, than if you're going to buy something anyway. Buy it from Hot Rod. <laughs> and you know you're buying it from people who know what the hell they're talking about.
2: And, you know, if you don't know what to buy, you should do what I do essentially uh, Monday through Friday, which is I have conversations with people about this. Uh, they call up the shop, inevitably the phone call, not, maybe not inevitably, quite often it, it never reaches me. Someone else can help them. But sometimes it goes up the food chain and it comes to me and I talk to someone for, for 20 to 40 minutes, usually about what sort of dilemma they have going on with equipment and gear and
1: get them on the the
2: path to glory.
1: Yay. Yay! Well, in production's picking up, so uh, that's right. Get, get on it, buy some stuff from Hot Rod. Anyway, Ilya, let that is it for us. We will be doing another one of these because we're we have a, a huge backlog of interviews that are going to be coming. Yeah, out we're,
2: we're this week's a special week. If you're still listening to sound of my voice, uh, you're going to get another episode in just a couple of days. So uh, we're going to record those wraps right now. And uh, yeah, don't let a whole week go by. Check back; you'll find another cinematography podcast in your queue. Excellent. All right. Well,
1: that's it. Thank you very much.